1: Well, good morning and welcome to Red Sea Roundup. Today, I am your host. Actually, I am Judy Como every day, but our hosting duties get circled around to other hosts. But today, Judy Como is the host of Red Sea Woo-hoo. Roundup and want to welcome our listeners. We are pre-recording this on Monday, the 21st, to be played on Wednesday the 23rd. But welcome to everyone who is listening today. I'm in the studio with Dos Amigos, Thaddeus Romansky, and Dennis Maka.
2: Morning, Judy. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I am doing great. Thaddeus, how's it going?
0: I'm doing great, Judy, and I do want to point out that uh, you do have a new status, though. You are now wife of a deacon.
1: That I am. Um, My friend texted me, you're going to drive to Austin with your husband and come home with the man of the cloth. Wow.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. So we... It was an amazing, amazing weekend. I imagine you're probably pretty tired. (laughs) (laughs) And
0: uh, For those listeners that aren't aware, Saturday, March 19th, Feast of St. Joseph, just passed, was the ordination mass for this year's class of... Of deacons of ordinance, right? right? 16, 16 men. For men. the Diocese of Austin. For the Diocese and my husband, of
1: Austin. Keith Como, happens to be one of them, as well as our station director,
0: uh, uh, uh. director of evangelization and outreach. And new title. i
1: love to be buzzed. He's right got here, a couple uh, of new titles yes, now. He's he does, deacon, but, but
0: yeah, he's, he's deacon Robin Waters.
1: He's over there in Central Texas, KYAR 98.3, Deacon Robin Waters. Shout out.
2: Yeah, he's, he's had a great whirlwind of a weekend as well I just spoke yes, to him he so. He's right.
0: so wiped out That's why he couldn't be on the recording with us this morning We had to pick up the slack for him
1: I bet he'll make up for it at another time you know? <laughs>
2: He's a go-getter,
0: man He sure
1: is But uh, So all thanks and praise be to God for that experience um, To be there, St. Williams in Round Rock What an amazing church to be at It and, was packed
2: uh, it was completely packed.
1: Yeah.
0: That so you know, is invite, invite only, and it was packed.
2: Yeah, it was. Um, we were packed into the back. Uh, packed like sardines. Into the back closet there, Thaddeus. Was well, that I the were. sound
1: room where we were grateful. you were? We were yeah.
2: grateful to have that. Of course. That spot. It
0: was yeah. a
1: nice yeah.
2: spot. It was a nice chilly spot. Everybody was a little bit warm. When when uh, Darby Maka takes her coat off in a church, you know it's warm. Yeah. <laughs> You know it's warm.
1: <laughs> well, I knew y'all were there, and I knew I didn't see y'all, and so uh, Darby we saw
0: you. We had the eye in the sky. We saw you.
2: We had a, a, we had a nice computer monitor in front of us, and we had all probably eight eight camera views right well, in front of us, and so we had one of the best seats in the house. I see. Besides oh, you, besides me,
0: because well, you were there front was and a
1: benefit of having Como as the last names because we were on right the, front the front row. I know. Yeah. I noticed.
0: I saw that. I saw
2: that. Yeah. Um, so it, it was a wonderful event for those that did not get to make it or those that did not get to hear it because we broadcast live the uh, two hour plus event. We will be putting that on our new podcast channel, which is called Red, Red Sea presents. presents. Yeah. So we're going to. We It's didn't so plan new to that I that. didn't even
1: know about it. I know.
2: I know. <laughs> I'm talking to Caitlin on we our staff. We wanted to and, present it to you this morning. Kay. Yeah. As a present to you. So that's why we named it Red Sea Presents, because it's a present. Present moment. Present
1: to be broadcast later. Yeah. So As presently,
2: well. it is on our podcast channel, podcast page that is at redsearadio.org forward slash podcast. And if you go to Red Sea Presents, look in the next couple of days, and you could listen to the entire broadcast in which we uh, did bit, not get to interview. for you. We did not get to interview the, the men, unfortunately, because they were in the vesting room. But we did read from their bios and talk about them and their background and did a nice highlight on Keith Como and Robin Waters at the beginning before the Mass started, and uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful liturgy.
1: Well, so many things about it, about going to an ordination for me uh-huh. was just so affirming of our universal Catholic faith and how um,
0: absolutely we have
1: a 2,000-year tradition Of um, Well, the Mass itself has not been Like it is right now for 2,000 years But we have Bishop Joe Vasquez Who was ordained by a bishop Who was ordained by a bishop And all the way back to St. Peter And you experience the laying on of hands Which Mm -hmm. is so biblical And the, um, the men at one point Right before they are ordained prostrate themselves mm-hmm. in uh, obedience and uh, the many, many biblical um, references to to that, very powerful, very yeah. powerful. To just see, it's so affirming in our faith, that our faith is alive and growing, mm-hmm. and it's just a blessing and thrilling to be a part of it.
0: Speaking about the Mass, that was a really beautiful, <laughs> really beautifully done liturgy. I thought it was very... Um, very, very much in keeping to the rubrics of the mass, and it was a, a beautiful expression of um, you know the use of Latin, the use of you had the organ, you had beautiful choral music. Um, it wow! Was it was, Prior yeah, to mass, absolutely. we were out
1: in the the opening vestibule yes. uh, of the narthex yeah. of Norfolk's. the church. Yes, um, I thought, is that live or? Is it uh, a recording Yeah. No. Timpanies And okay. it was very yeah. <laughs> yeah. Outstanding So It was beautiful Props to the worship office Over yes, in, in yes, our indeed. diocese Many um, Lots of workings Going on there
2: Yeah it, it was just an honor To be able to broadcast it And it, we did it Without a hitch And it, it went off Very nicely They had a a great audio setup for us. So, yeah, thanks to St. Well, I mean, I, right.
0: I think I had a hitch in my giddy-up a little few times that he during was, the broadcast. That he
2: is, yeah. If he made a few mistakes, folks, it it just basically, he just needs to get over that because I do that on a, a regular basis. Just if he makes one mistake once, you know, welcome to the club, buddy.
1: He's
2: flagellating himself here. <laughs>
1: Yeah. No, Speaking of mentioning he Lent, before we move much further into that, I want to tell our listeners that uh, the inter- interview part of uh, oh, the yeah. better part of Red Sea Roundup today will be a wonderful conversation with our Vicar General, Father James Misco. Yeah.
0: Now, you're going a little bit off your plan for the year this is one of kind of your off months right because you're not doing something specifically with the sacraments this month right
1: he is going to talk about the sacrament of holy orders at some point so it will in keeping with my sacramental wonderful mode of red sea when you do realize
0: you're going to have five months that you're going to have to either double up on or do something else though because there's only seven sacraments
1: absolutely I got a plan. I'm
0: excited to. That's what I'm really about, excited. This to find out about. This is as organized as
1: I've ever been as a host to actually have uh, a plan for more than one or two days before the day that I actually do the interview. So mm-hmm. it's a uh, maybe I'm experiencing some growth. I don't this, know. This
2: this fits the bill quite well <laughs> for you to talk about holy orders. I think so. I would think the so. vicar general of the diocese of Austin. Yeah, we're excited about having him on, and he's also very excited. Uh, you know, eagerly was wanting to to be on our airwaves to talk. Well, about Lent, about Holy Orders, but also, what, his vocation story as well. Absolutely.
1: So. And as a host, it's wonderful when someone says, hey, I was sure would like to be yeah. on the radio. And so, uh, especially him, he's a great, great speaker and a great homilist. And, wonderful uh, priest. So stick with us through the break in a little while and we'll... Uh, Listen to some wisdom by Father James.
2: Well, speaking of wisdom, we had the wisdom of Adios Romanski over here with a microphone. Man on the street, after the ordination, was able to go up and catch a few interviews. We got some station IDs from the new deacons, of course. And the Maka family got some just incredible graces through blessings from both Deacon Keith and Deacon Robin after uh, they were ordained. But uh, we uh, had a—do you want to intro— one or two of the uh the interviews that you got yeah on the street
0: yeah sure thank you dennis um we went over to the parish hall afterwards we were everyone that was in attendance was invited and we caught up with the new deacons from our listening area like we just mentioned to you but i also had a chance to speak with father raj who's the pastor at saint anthony's in Bryan, where judy and keith are parishioners and so here's what he had to say about uh, what it meant to him to have Deacon Keith Como now.
2: I'm really happy to have a Deacon Keith Como. It is a really a blessing. So I could see the blessing of God through him. Yes. So I not only blessing for me, it is also blessing for St. Anthony. So praise the Lord. Yes
0: and are you going to put him to work right away
2: not really he needs his own time But maybe he may be assigned to some other parish I'm That's not right. sure so if I am if I have it I'm happy if he goes to some other parish I'm happy for him too because he's going to do God's work I will uh, continue to pray for him God bless him Thanks, Father Raj. thank you so that was a great interview with Father Raj. Yeah, thank you for catching him in the action. And and those of you who are in Central Texas know Father Raj as well because he also was assigned at Saint Jerome for a number of years. Well loved priest, and uh, you know he's at he's at my home parish now. So. Such a
1: joyful guy, oh, yeah. so intentional. He, yes, you know, yes. very learns your name. Mm-hmm. He. Works really hard at that. Yeah,
0: said. and uh, then I I moved a little bit through the crowd some more, Snake which wasn't went, an easy task. No, there was a there was a good, nice sized crowd there, uh, and then I was able to get over and get that station ID from Deacon Como, and then I pinched him afterwards for <laughs> his own reactions, thoughts to the ordination, and here's what he had to say:
2: Just first thoughts,
0: first feelings. What was
2: your favorite part of the Mass, anything? Laying prostrate. Just letting go of who I was and taking in Christ completely. The love that he has for me and the love that he wants me to bring to everybody. God loves us all and wants us all to be his family. Amen.
0: All right. And uh, finally, you know, didn't want to leave Robin Waters out of the equation. And so I was able to catch up to him right before he was trying to put, I think, some food (laughs) in his stomach or take a drink of water. I don't remember which.
2: Or take a breath. maybe. Um, Yeah.
0: But I, I asked him for the station ID and which he dutifully did. And then we got these reflections from him.
1: I think lying prostrate was one of the most touching moments, but to be honest, uh, when I was able to elevate the cup as the deacon of the altar, but the most touching for me personally was whenever, whenever uh, after communion I reposed the Eucharist and I placed Jesus in the tabernacle and then knelt before him. I could just feel his
0: presence all around me at that time. But that was That was the strongest for me. Thank you for sharing that with us, Robin. All
1: right. Well, awesome. thanks be
2: to God. Yeah, it it was great to, to hear from them and to see them with just such joy in their face. Well, Judy, uh, you know, and knowing full firsthand.
1: Uh, that uh, our formator said, when the Mass is over, you guys stick together and go straight to the vesting room. People are going to try to be the first one to get a blessing or try to talk to you and share yeah. their uh, emotion of the day. But... Remain focused and to where I get all the way over there and get in the room, and then it's, it's kind of scattered. Free There's, for all. Yeah. I mean the the church held fifteen hundred people, yeah, and a good portion of them came on came on over for the reception. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. uh just the overwhelming. Uh, I, it's just difficult to put it into words as to how we were feeling in the room, and you know we had our kids and siblings there and it was definitely
2: uh, filled with joy yeah
1: it was nice very much so well
0: we were honored to be there for you guys to commemorate it to um memorialize it you might say now you've got a permanent record of that day at least in audio form and it was just a great joy for us and we're so thankful for all the success all the support you gave to keith through the whole thing Amen. Uh,
1: blessed to do so y'all stick with us father james Misco. after the break I can
2: yes, I am. I was dead in the gray.
1: Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. If you're just joining us. Number one, this is a pre-recorded interview, uh, one day ahead of time, and my guest today is the Vicar General of the Austin Diocese, Father James Misco. Good morning, Father.
3: Yes, good morning. Great to be with you all.
1: It is. It is. uh, We we here in College Station have a beautiful, sunshiny day after a rough night of weather, but uh, we're happy to be here and uh, I was pleased to meet you very briefly this past weekend, and i um, just looking forward to our conversation. If you yeah, could... it was
3: great. That, that ordination was just uh, spectacular. Bishop Vasquez was able to ordain 16 men to the permanent diaconate at St. William Parish in Round Rock, and it was just so so beautiful. You know, coming out of the pandemic, it was really one of the first liturgies that we've had where it was a full church, and so it was just... It was almost like uh, a Pentecost moment before Pentecost. So, <laughs> it's a wonderful, a wonderful day for the Diocese of Austin uh, for that's sure. Uh,
1: <clears throat> exactly the way that I um, described it as well. Uh, my husband was one of the sixteen. Keith Como,
3: he uh, did well. I, I saw him get ordained, and I saw you sitting there. It was so wonderful to see your joy, and uh, of course, Bishop Vasquez is always overjoyed to be able to ordain men to the to the diaconate. So, it was just a great day.
1: It was. Um, Father, I started the year off with um, hosting a show once a month and representing the sacraments. And so as we move into our interview, reflecting on to the sacrament of holy orders that we just experienced, um, any way that you choose to do that, introduce yourself, tell us what a vicar general is, and then a brief little teaching of the sacrament of holy orders.
3: Yeah, absolutely, of course. Well, um, I'm the vicar general for the diocese. I also serve as the moderator of the curia. Those are fancy words for uh, just day-to-day operational uh, activity, operational ministry that takes place. So the vicar general is the person who assists the bishop in the governance of the diocese. And so that means that as the bishop uh, governs the 123 parishes plus our 21 schools, In our other organizations, from time to time, there are things that have to do with policy and protocol and and even legal documents that uh, need to be uh, addressed and taken care of. And so I assist him in those things. So for example, when a parish wants to buy a new piece of property, for example, uh, the bishop may not have the opportunity to sign that contract, so I would sign my name uh, vicariously through him. That's where the word Vicar comes from is that my ministry is vicarious through the bishop's ministry, uh, and so I do that in legal matters. I do that in uh, past uh, or governing matters. I do that in uh, matters of policy for the diocese. Uh, I, I do all of those things uh, vicariously through him, or kind of on his behalf. So that's the vicar general's role. Uh, the moderator of the Curia's role is kind of a fancy uh, word for, a couple of fancy words for uh, chief operations officer. That's kind of what the moderator of the Curia is. The Curia is the gathering of associates around a bishop that help him to run the diocese. And so here at the Diocese of Austin, we have 93 employees that work here at the Pastoral Center, Uh, And we have, of course, Cedar Break Retreat Center, and then all of the employees that work for Catholic Charities of Central Texas. And in fact, there's an office there in Bryan. And so my role is to help the bishop to operate those uh, day-in and day-out ministries, and I do that as the moderator of the Curia. So kind of like the general manager or chief operations officer for the diocese.
1: Yes, sir. Um, Do we always have a vicar general, or is it a... No, yeah.
3: uh, Every diocese has Has a vicar general. In fact, many religious communities have vicars general for their religious communities. And basically, it's just someone who has general uh, governing authority as given by the bishop over the things that the bishop has governing authority over. That's why the term general is used. Vicar can be used, by the way for even an associate pastor at a parish you might have heard the term parochial vicar. Yes sir. What that what that means is that he has vicari his ministry is vicarious through the pastor. So a parochial vicar is not like a freelance guy who just goes around and works from parish to parish. No no, he's actually at the parish and his ministry flows from the pastor. He is vicarious to the pastor and that's what the word parochial vicar stands for. So yeah, so every diocese has a vicar general.
1: I see. And a parochial vicar is e- has, equal to a associate pastor? or That's
3: correct. They're the same thing. They're the same thing.
1: Okay. And there are all these roles are appointed That's by, correct. by the
3: bishop? That is correct.
1: Okay. Very good. Well, that that answers some of my questions that I had. Sure. Um, like I like to have things... Uh, when someone's asked me a question, I want to be able to answer it. So,
3: absolutely, absolutely. Uh,
1: in keeping with my sacramental shows, let's talk just a little bit uh, about the sacrament of holy orders.
3: Yeah, of course, uh, you know, and this is, comes from Christ in the, the scriptures that, um, in fact, the first uh, group of clerics were actually not priests. They were not the presbyters. They were the deacons. Mm -hmm. And we know that beautiful story where they select seven men of good uh, reputation to be able to assist the the local bishop in his ministry. So the ordination of a man to the diaconate actually carries with it, all the way back from uh, early Christian times, three munera. Amunera is a Latin word for ministry. So there's three ministries that the deacons have. The first one is to proclaim the gospel. That's why the deacons always read the gospel at Mass. The second one is to assist at the liturgy. That's why he's at the altar. And then the third one is to be a custodian of the Eucharist for the poor. And so uh, those three ministries are actually the three official ministries of being ordained a deacon, that he is ordained to proclaim the word of God. He is ordained to assist the bishop at the altar in liturgy, the Mass, and he is ordained to be a custodian of the Eucharist to ensure that the widows and the orphan and those who are homebound have the things that they need, first and foremost the Eucharist, and then other things that they need uh, because they might be living in a, a place of poverty. And so those are the three munera of a deacon. A priest, a man who's ordained to the priesthood, also has three munera, and that is the munera of teaching, sanctifying, and leading. So a priest, your pastor in your parish, your parochial vicar, they are imbued through the grace of the sacrament to teach. And how do they teach? Well, they teach in homilies. They teach sometimes in RCIA. They teach sometimes in the bulletin when they write weekly uh, bulletin inserts. Um, They teach when they're uh, giving counseling to people. Uh, The priest also um, sanctifies. Well, how does he sanctify? Well, being in persona Christi, he makes things holy. So the bread and the wine through Christ in the body of the priest is made holy. So his ministry, his ordination character is to sanctify things. This is why you always ask the priest to bless things. And then finally lead. Each priest is actually ordained to lead. He's not ordained to go to a parish and do all of the ministry himself. He is ordained to go to the parish and to lead others, both others who are ordained, the priests and the deacons, but also all of the lay faithful who have been baptized into the universal priesthood of all believers to fulfill their baptismal promise of going out and making disciples of all nations. So the priest, your pastor, his, one of his munera is to lead the local parish in bringing about Christ's kingdom in that local parish. So the, the deacons and the priests, they work together under a bishop. Interestingly enough, the deacons are actually officially the assistants to the bishop. They assist the bishop in his ministry. The priests represent the bishop, because the bishop can't be in 123 parishes at the same time. If you go back to the early church, there may only be one church in every region, and that would be the bishop. And that's why deacons were the first to be ordained. But then as the church began to grow, they knew that they couldn't have a bishop be in four or five places at the same time, and that's when the presbyters were established, or the priests, to be able to go out and to represent the bishop, at that particular parish.
1: And at that that's time, not, uh, sorry to interrupt you, um, the, yeah, what did the <clears throat> the weekly worship, what, what did it look like if we didn't have the presbyters at that time?
3: It would have been the bishop. The bishop would have been, like, if you go back to Rome, I don't know if you've ever traveled to Rome. Yes,
1: sir, or I have.
3: Uh, But uh, if you go to the Church of San Clemente, which is right by the Colosseum in Rome, Mm -hmm. that is the actual home of Pope Clement, who was the fourth pope. And if you go into that church, you enter from street level into, I think it's about um, a 10th century church, maybe an 11th century church. And then if you go down the stairs into the level just below the main floor, you go into the Byzantine era church, which would be from the 5th or the 6th century. And then you can go even below that to the 1st century church, which was actually Clement's house where he lived. And that was where the early Christian community worshipped uh, around that bishop in Rome, who was Clement. And that's where the church San Clemente comes from. That's Italian for St. Clement. Mm-hmm. And so if you go back to the early church, what would happen would be there would be people who couldn't come to Holy Communion. Maybe they are homebound or maybe they, they were somehow uh, not able to make it for one reason or another. The deacons would hold back some of the communion and then they would take that communion to those who could not be at the celebration of the Eucharist. See. And that's, that's why today, that's why today, deacons, one of their munera is to be a custodian of the Eucharist to protect the Eucharist, and to take it to those who are most in need. And so um, while deacons do many, many other things, sometimes they help with RCIA, sometimes they, they certainly do baptisms on Saturday mornings at many parishes, they can do graveside services, and they can do funerals and weddings outside of Mass. Um, sometimes they help um, people go through very difficult situations by accompanying them on an annulment process. They do many, many other things, which is good. But really, the most important things they do is preach, the, is proclaim the gospel, uh, serve at the altar, and care for the Eucharist, bringing it to those in need. So, a deacon, if he wanted to really embrace his most official uh, capacity as an ordained man, he would pre- proclaim the gospel at mass. He would serve at the altar, and then he would take communion to someone who was in need of communion. That would be the most authentic, fundamental role of the deacon, among many other important things that he does.
1: Awesome. That is very fascinating. Um, So as you described Holy Orders as the deacon and the priest, uh, can you share your call to the priesthood and how how that played out?
3: Sure. Well, when I was a a, a kid, my family grew up in California, and uh, I actually had a great uncle who was a priest, a Jesuit priest, and he was in the western province of the Jesuits. And it was my grandmother's brother. And uh, he served at Gonzaga University, Santa Clara University, Loyola Marymount University, and in a number of other capacities throughout his life. And so when I was a kid, uh, Father John was always there. He came for Christmas and for Easter. In fact, he would come and visit my family from time to time. And uh, he was very, very involved in the family. So for me, growing up, uh, being a priest, was just a very natural thing for a young Catholic man to think about. The other thing I was thinking about the other day was uh, I was at Project uh, Andrew Mm -hmm. with uh, Father Greg Gerhardt, our vocations director, and I was talking to some guys and and kind of talking about the great influences that I had throughout my my youth. Uh, And really my dad, my own father, was a great influence because – he really, really appreciated priests. I could remember as a young man, the, my dad was a Knight of Columbus and very involved in the parish. I mean, there were many years where he was in charge of the parish fiesta, you know, the, the, the parish festival that we had. And so he was always very engaged in helping the pastor run the parish and really, quite frankly, became friends with the, the priests. They would go to lunch and hang out. They were just very, very good friends. So for me, there was always a very high level of respect for priests that came from my parents, my mom and dad. And when I think about uh, young men today and families, this would be something that would be really important for our listeners to really embrace, is this idea that um, young men, they can see how people um, appreciate their priests. And they can also see how sometimes people are not very appreciative of their priests and they get frustrated or maybe even uh, treat their priests maybe um, in a negative way. And that would, and when that happens, that young man sees that and he says possibly to himself, Mm. wow, I don't ever want that to happen to me. So I'm not going to consider being a priest. But if he sees parents and, and, and adults who really have a high regard for their priests and show a great deal of care for them, Uh, then he might say to himself, you know, that seems like that would be a wonderful life. And that's what it was for me. I always just thought to myself, that would be a wonderful life. Um, Now, when I graduated from St. Edward's University here in Austin, um, I had already been thinking about being a priest since I was in high school. uh, But I happened to be waiting tables at a restaurant called Macaroni Grill. And um, I was 23 at the time. And they offered me a job as a manager. And so I thought to myself, well, you know what? I know that I can go to seminary in a couple of years. This might be good experience for me. So, I decided to spend a couple of years doing that. Well, uh, as happens sometimes in the in the in in the corporate world, you know, time goes fast. One year turns into two, two turns into four before you realize <laughs> that you're at six years. And, That's much, and,
1: like, yeah. much like raising kids.
3: <laughs> it, it goes really <laughs> your fast. Your marriage. And, and so, I, and that, so I, <clears throat> they promoted me to become um, the, the chef of one of the macaroni grills. And then I became a general manager and then a managing partner here in the Austin market. And so for me, um, I experienced a lot of, of joy in that success in the restaurant business. But I never stopped thinking about being a priest. Um, and it was, um, it was seven years of working there at, at, in the restaurant that I just, I just kept thinking about being a priest. I would go to Mass on Sunday. Um, I would imagine myself being the priest at that Mass. I just couldn't get that out of my head. So when I was 30, I went to seminary and was ordained when I was 37. Um, now, it's so interesting. People ask me about that. and I say, yeah, when I used to work in the restaurant, I'd get there early in the morning and I would um, get everything ready, check the air conditioning, check the lights, check the bathrooms, and then let people in and I would talk to them and feed them and uh, hope they come back next week. <laughs> uh, and I said, now I became a priest, and I get to the church early in the morning, and I check the lights, check the AC, check the bathrooms, I get everything ready, let the people in, I, I talk to them and feed them, and hope they come back next week. <laughs> oh, so, that's amazing. There's so many uh, just really wonderful similarities between, you know, the hospitality of running a restaurant and the hospitality of pastoring a parish, feeding people. I mean, Christ himself almost always had a meal wherever he was. It's such an integral part of who we are as humans that we have to eat in order to exist to be fully alive, and uh, and so I have found so many wonderful connections between working in a restaurant and uh, being a priest.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I've I was a part of youth ministry for n- nearly 20 years, and uh, many times we would, uh, right before Easter during Lent, uh, we would ask the teens, you know, what what would you do. You know, Jesus knew what was ahead of him. What would you do the night before this process was going to be laid out? And it, many times they would—thankfully, some of them would say, I'd go to confession first, but they'd want to have a meal and be around their family and were able to relate that uh, to the Eucharist. And um, I, just as a question, you don't have to answer here live on that, but if you happen to be able to— Give away that recipe for osobuco from...
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. I, I, I wish I could say that I was as good now at cooking as I was then. I'm pretty good. I'll now,
1: give you a shot. I'll, I'll give you a it's shot. It's
3: been 20 years, so it's been 20 years.
1: Well, very good. So um, I, I appreciate you taking some of the time um, of our interview to relate through that. It's uh, It just makes... Uh, I think we, as the laity, need to understand the humanity part of the priesthood yeah. and uh, how we all have to overcome our humanity and our vocation to be able to uh, grow closer with Christ. And here we are in this beautiful season of Lent, and many things guide us into growing in our relationship with Jesus through this uh, holy season uh, perhaps it's time for us to shift into that part of sure. the interview. Sure,
3: absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so tell, me, tell me what you would like me to, to visit with you about when it comes to Lent.
1: Well, I personally, sometimes there are times when uh, from the pulpit we'll hear about things that if you didn't grow up with that devotion, Stations of the Cross, for instance, uh, okay. Ash Wednesdays this Wednesday, and we'll have Stations of the Cross on Fridays, and or Adoration. You know, you should go to Adoration. But if you don't have that experience, I, I think maybe some of our listeners don't really understand what Lent is actually, and how the season of Lent grew from the beginning of. Uh, you know, a lot of times uh, we focus on the Easter Vigil and people growing in RCIA and coming in that, but. Maybe just an overall view of the season sure. of Lent.
3: Well, I tell you, Lent for me—I don't I, don't. I hope this doesn't mm-hmm. sound bizarre, but I love the season of Lent. I don't know. It's just an, an incredible moment of personal and um, communal sort of. Um, Reality that we face so many things. Like, for example, starting on Ash Wednesday, you know, it's so interesting that um, if you think about that second creation story, you know, in the book of Genesis, there are two creation stories. The first one, which was, interestingly enough, written later Mm -hmm. than the second one. The first one is where God creates the world in six days and rests on the seventh. That's the one that seems to be the most popular creation story. But there's that second creation story, which, interestingly enough, was the first one that was written, uh, is that story where God creates the world out of the dust. Uh, he, uh, He creates man and woman out of the dust. And what is it that we put on our foreheads at the very beginning of Lent is dust. And, of course, the famous words, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, another interesting connection to that would be this. When a baby is baptized, the very first thing that the deacon or the priest does is trace a cross on the forehead of the baby, claiming that baby for Christ. And then he asks the parents and the godparents to follow by tracing a cross on the forehead of the baby. Mm -hmm. Then when that baby becomes an adolescent, in most cases, not always, but in most cases, that baby or that adolescent receives confirmation. And what happens at confirmation? A cross is traced on the forehead of that person so that that person realizes that the Holy Spirit is confirming that moment where that person was claimed for Christ. Confirmation is not about us claiming Christ for ourselves. It's the opposite. It's confirming that we were claimed by Christ. And then every Ash Wednesday, what happens? A cross is traced on the forehead of of the person by that same dust by which we were created in that second creation story, claiming us for Christ. That, to me, is claiming us for God. What a beautiful image that every... So every Lent... We are reclaimed by God in this experience that we have of these weeks of fasting and prayer and abstaining uh, and almsgiving and all those things. Interestingly enough, if you go to the anointing of the sick and last rites, when a priest goes into someone's hospital room or at the bedside and he anoints them with oil, what does he do? He traces a cross cross with the oil of the sick on their forehead, claiming them again for Christ. And that really is, to me, the most powerful image of Lent. It comes from the book Prophet Joel, that very first reading that we have every Ash Wednesday, return to me, says the Lord. Well, why would he say that? Well, because he claimed us for himself. We are his elect. The word elect means chosen, that he claimed us for his own, and all the wanderings in which we engage by committing sins and not saying our prayers, when we have to say our prayers, and when, you know, just not being attentive to God. He says, no, 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 I've claimed you since you were baptized, since you were confirmed. I claim you every Ash Wednesday, and I will claim you all the way to the end when you are preparing to come to me after death. Now return to me. You are mine. This, I think, is a very, very powerful image of lent i don't know does that resonate with you at all Oh,
1: yes absolutely and when you were saying that uh beginning with ash wednesday um i'm sure many people have had conversations or observations of the many people that flock to ash wednesday service to get those ashes and it's easy to um maybe have thoughts that aren't as generous as they could be um But what a wonderful image of the fact that that they're there!
3: Yeah, and somehow God—we are there. (laughs) God goes back to that beginning when He created us out of the dust, and He, He. So, in other words, when we are, when ashes are imposed on our foreheads, it's as if God is recalling Himself that moment when He created us out of the dust. It's just an incredible image. I mean, there's so many other images. You know, another one I think is so powerful is the desert. Mm -hmm. Pope Benedict has an incredible reflection on the image of the desert in Lent. He says that um, the desert at first seems to be a place of deprivation, a place where there's nothing, a place of nothingness. And so it is our natural inclination to shy away from the desert, to say, oh, no, there's no water there, there's no air conditioning there, Mm. there's no um, civilization there, because it's the desert. But Pope Benedict says, in fact, the more you think about it, the opposite comes true, that the desert is not a place of nothing. The desert is actually the place of the infinite. Because in the desert, think about going out into West Texas, out on i 10 (laughs) You can see what seems like forever. Um, Father Ron Rollheiser, a priest in San Antonio, who has a lot of beautiful spiritual books, he talks about the infinite horizon, that somehow when we're in the desert, we are pulled into the infinite horizon. So Pope Benedict says because the desert has nothing, because it's so vast, because it's so wide open, it automatically pulls us into the infiniteness of God. In the city, inside our own neighborhoods, there are many, many things that we can hide behind. We hide behind buildings. We hide uh, from God inside buildings. Things get in the way. Um, Our agendas get in the way. Our activities, we hide behind our activities. But when you go to the desert, there's nothing to hide behind. Because there's, there's like, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, our listeners who have ever been to the Holy Land, you know, the Judean desert, which is east of Jerusalem, going down to Jericho, and many of us have seen pictures of that. I mean, there is not a tree. I mean, it is just nothing. And yet, it is in that nothingness that we are able to engage with God's infiniteness. And this is why, like, for example, Mother Teresa said that Lent is about this time of emptying ourselves so that there will actually be room for God in us. Yes. So that's such an incredible image, that image of going to the desert. Um, Father Thomas Merton writes a lot about this, and he has this wonderful essay in his book, Thoughts in Solitude, which I would recommend. It's just a really, I wouldn't recommend Father Thomas Merton was not a dogmatic theologian. So for our dogmatic theologians, you want to go to someone like St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. But Thomas Merton is a spiritual theologian. And so when you go to his book, Thoughts in Solitude, I think it's in the first or the second chapter of that little book. It's not a very long book, 60 or 70 pages. Anyway, he talks about the desert. He says, when you go to the desert, um, there are no resources and you can't rely on anything else but God, that, that our lives, and this, by the way, is why the priest at Mass prays in the Oran's position. The Oran's position is when the priest holds his hands out, like during the Eucharistic prayer, you see Father holding his hands up in the air. Um, he's not doing that to hold up your prayers or to re- hold the roof up. I mean, that's not the purpose of praying in the Oran's position. Praying in that position is that priest is saying, Lord, I will not manipulate you, I mean, what do we do with our hands? Well, we calculate, Mm -hmm. we write, we type on our our, our laptop computers, Uh, we can push people away, we can pull people in with our hands. But when you extend your hands out, like the priest does at Mass in prayer, interestingly enough, Christ extended his hands out to be crucified on the cross. It's the ultimate sign that you will not manipulate God, that God is God and we will cultivate this sense of docility to God. So mm-hmm. Thomas Merton writes that going to the desert, you don't have anything to rely on except God. And that's why the desert, and this is why Pope, Fran- Pope Benedict said, is it any wonder that the world's great religions all began in the desert? Oh,
1: that's amazing. And, you know, another
3: interesting thing is when Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt, if you look at a map right now, It would have only been about a four-day walk to get from Egypt to the Promised Land. But isn't it interesting that God in his wisdom had them wandering around the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years because this desert is a place that helps us to rely on God alone. When we're elsewhere in the world, when we have all the resources we need, it so easily happens that we rely on ourselves. But when we go to the desert, we rely only and entirely on God. This is why the desert is a place of holiness. So to me, that's just a powerful image for Lent. Um, tell, me, tell me what does that conjure oh, any thoughts in your mind?
1: Absolutely. I, many times in a conversation or in my own faith journey, expressing, oh, well, I'm really in the desert right now. <laughs> It's such an inaccurate description of what the desert actually is. And, I, and
3: when people tell me that I'm in the <laughs> desert, I say, well, congratulations. That's what I mean. I had a
1: friend who said, God praise is. God, praise God that. And it's a shocking turn of your uh, mindset. And it's, it of really
3: is. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, some other things that, that come up that are such incredible images is the color purple. You know, we, the priests, we wear violet as our color. Well, you know how you get the color purple? You mix Blue, which is the color of hope, and that's Mary's color, and red, the color of martyrdom. And you put those two colors together, and you get purple or violet. And that is another incredible image of what Lent is. It is a hopeful martyrdom, that you are welcome, you are willing to be martyred in small ways, like fasting, giving something up, almsgiving. These are small little martyrdoms. Or going to confession or spending extra time uh, in prayer when maybe it's hard for you to do that because there's other things that you'd rather be doing. These little martyrdoms are bolstered by the hope that at the resurrection, God will allow us to leave our burial cloths behind. What are our burial cloths? Our sins, our bad habits, our willfulness, um, our unwillingness to... Reconcile with someone that we've had a rift with, all these things. And what do they do? Just like Christ's dead body, they bind us, they tie us up, and they 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 cause us to not be able to be free, to go out and be who God created us to be. So the martyrdom of Lent is that we allow ourselves to be bound tight by those burial claws. But the hope of Lent is that those burial claws, like Christ's. Will be left behind in the tomb on Easter Sunday, where we will emerge free, and as God once envisioned us when He thought of us for the first time. Oh. I mean, this is this is an incredible image, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. And I too um, have grown f- very fond of the season of Lent and look forward to it. And it's almost—I guess—perhaps you could elaborate on the fact that just because Easter Sunday happens, we it shouldn't end. Lent should our Lent. Should continue on and on and on, leading us if it's not leading us closer to loving Jesus then it really is just a act of will.
3: well it's so you know it's so interesting that um, from time to time I help Bishop Vasquez when he can't be in two places at once, um, I help him by uh, presiding at some confirmations around the diocese. Uh, and so one of the things that I often say to the people being confirmed is that um, God's desire, is to live in us. His desire is not just to simply be near us. He actually wants to live our lives with us. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's interesting that in Spanish, uh, the prayer that is prayed at the Confirmation Liturgy um, is a translation of the prayer that we pray in English, which talks about uh, asking the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within us. Well, there's not an exact translation into Spanish of the word dwell, and so the verb in Spanish is habitar, H-A-B-I-T-A-R, that we're asking God to, in a sense, habitate inside of us. And it's so interesting because when you talk about having, you know, a constant sort of um, emptying, well, as Mother Teresa said, we empty ourselves not so that we'll be miserable— Not because God doesn't want us to be happy. We empty ourselves because God wants to habitate in us. And if there's no room for him, this is going to be a problem. So our entire life, in fact, is a Lenten experience of emptying ourselves for the express purpose that God will fill us with his presence. So in fact, one could argue that life itself is a long Lent. Yes, sir.
1: Well, uh, we have about five minutes left, Father James, and I was wondering if we could transition into um, an explanation of Holy Week or a a little teaching, walk us through
3: uh, the Triduum.
1: Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. First of all, it's the most sacred week of the year. The Triduum is actually one long liturgy. It starts, of course, with the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Thursday evening, uh, Holy Thursday, what used to be called Maundy Thursday, um, that comes from the Latin word mandatum. And so that's the mandate that Christ gives that night at the Last Supper that he says, you mu- if I'm going to wash your feet, you must go and wash the feet of others. So that's how the word Maundy Thursday came to be. It comes from the word mandatum. Um, we now call uh, Maundy Thursday, Holy Thursday. And of course, it's the celebration of the institution of the Eucharist, and it's the call to go and to do as Jesus did to the apostles and wash each other's feet. When, uh, one of the things that I like to do when I'm preaching on Holy Thursday is to, um, to tell the people, when you get home tonight, families, husbands and wives, friends, when you get home tonight, you should have a foot washing at home that Christ has just washed these 12 people's feet here at this Mass, but the mandate is that you go and wash people's feet. So why not do it tonight? Go right home, moms and dads and grandparents and grandchildren, husbands and wives, and even friends, if you're a single person and you, don't have, you live by yourself, get together and wash each other's feet. It's a powerful, powerful experience to accept Christ's mandate on Holy Thursday. Then of course you may or may not know or remember that there's no final blessing at the end of Holy Thursday. We simply go into the reposition of the blessed sacrament to the altar of repose. And then on Good Friday, when we come, it's the only day of the church year where there's no mass that is celebrated. It's the liturgy of the veneration of the cross and the proclamation of the lord's passion and so it's interesting that when you get to church the priest and the deacon and his altar servers they come in in silence and there's no sign of the cross that starts that liturgy and then we go through the whole liturgy and at the end there's no sign of the cross at the end of the liturgy and then when we go to the beginning of the easter vigil the great easter vigil on holy saturday night It doesn't begin with the sign of the cross because it's just the extension of that same liturgy so holy thursday good friday and holy saturday are really one long liturgy now there's no law that says that someone has to go to all three of those if you can and if your if your schedule allows you to do this the best way to do that is to go to all three of them um otherwise you're just kind of having a piece of one and a piece of the other Specifically on Good Friday, maybe a thought that I might offer to you all to think about is the notion of the cross, the crucifix. If you think about this, it's one of the ugliest things that could have ever happened. Crucifixion, one of the ugliest things. A person is literally nailed to a cross. And in Golgotha, at that time, would have been just outside the city gates on the west side of the old city of Jerusalem. And it would have probably had 20 or 30 crosses that were you know, bored into the stone of this old quarry. And the person being crucified would have carried this cross beam on their shoulder, not the cross as we know it. And then they would have sort of hoisted the person up over this beam that was already bored into this stone pavement, this stone ground. Uh, and then they would be just left there uh, to, for days. And the Romans did that uh, to terrorize the Jewish people so that they wouldn't revolt. So if you think about it, it's a very, very, very ugly thing. And yet, what, there's 1.5 billion Catholics on the planet, Christians on the planet. And if you think about your own life, you probably have 10 crucifixes, maybe more, on your walls at home, crucifixes that you wear as jewelry. Um, So if we do the math, there's probably 15 billion crucifixes on this planet at any given time. Now, what's most interesting is that when I see crucifixes, like my, one of my favorites is the San Damiano cross from Assisi, Italy. Um, how many times do we go in front of a crucifix and say to someone, wow, what a beautiful crucifix. Look how beautiful that crucifix is. We have one here in the chapel at the diocese that was a, it's a cast of the sculptor uh, Umlauf, who was a professor at the University of Texas. Some of you may know the Umlauf Sculpture Garden here in Austin. Well, it's just this most incredibly beautiful crucifix. And when I walk by it, I always say, that is so beautiful. Well, that goes back to this idea of hopeful martyrdom, that on Good Friday, isn't it interesting that something so ugly has become something so beautiful. Yes, Father. It actually becomes art that people—and isn't it interesting that a, that a day that was so bad actually is now known as Good, good for, oh, that's Friday. That's amazing. Amen.
2: <laughs> so well, Father, me, Father, we're going yeah. to have uh, to—we're reaching the, the end of the show, and so Man, I was wondering if so you nice. could—, I could
3: I could talk for days. Thank you for letting me visit with you. (laughs) Well, speaking of
2: the cross and the crucifix, I was wondering if you could leave us with the sign of the cross with your own uh, priestly blessing.
3: Of course. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing now upon Red Sea Radio and all of its listeners. Infuse them with your grace, Lord, so that they will have a fruitful and a holy Lent. And I bless them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you father. Uh hope we have another opportunity to revisit an interview uh, just fascinating. We appreciate your time.
3: Thank you so bet. much. God bless you all and please pray for your priests. Amen. Take care. Have a great
1: night.